I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save 25 bucks. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831 the Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig is the perfect start to set any holiday vibe. The Home Bar makes over 30 cocktails, brews, ciders, and more, all at the push of a button. From cosmopolitans to old fashions, each pod contains real ingredients and premium spirits. Insert the pod and let the Home Bar do the work. Go to drinkworks.com to order your Home Bar and see all available drinks. Drinkworks. Press play. Keurig is a registered trademark of Keurig Green Mountain, Inc., used under license. Please enjoy responsibly. Initially, I go to set. I'm like, can we just have healthy stuff and dates and apricots and fruit? Where's the M&Ms? Like, just pile them into a cup and just sit there and eat them. Hello, everyone. It is Ladies Night Time again. And this time, I'm getting to chat with Vina Sood, the writer and director behind Quibi's The Stranger. How are you doing, Vina? I'm good. I'm doing great. I, I am very into all of the, the decorations slash the stranger mm-hmm. celebration. Actually, this is so perfect for ladies night because you've got like a little of everything you've accomplished behind you right now. I do. I, you know, I just figured I might as well cover up the walls and have something to look at um, while I'm talking. So yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't like my walls covered at all. <laughs> uh, all right. So very, very beginning for you. Just where did your love of television and film start? Was it a particular movie, show, anything that you saw when you were young? You know, it was uh, my parents uh, 
they had no filter in terms of what we were allowed to watch at any age. And so at a very young age, I was watching probably uh, material I sh- a four-year-old should not be watching. Um, and Hitchcock was, was really my first influence. And my parents were huge fans of Hitchcock, watched everything. Uh, and, and so four-year-old me got to as well. Uh, and and yeah, I'll never forget. I mean, I was a little bit older when I watched um, Psycho. Not that much older. And it was traumatizing. <laughs> but it also instilled in me um, a great love of story, cinematography, um, you know, the, the, the shot of uh, Janet Lee's eye and the drain, I'll never forget. It was seared into my brain um, as, as uh, you know, the whole idea that uh, a picture says a thousand words was so um, clear to me as a young child. So I, you know, that started a whole journey of, of collecting photographs, of looking at photography, of watching film. And then I also, luckily, the... Unfiltered number two was I grew up in Ohio, um, in Cincinnati, which is a hugely conservative city. Um, and that's where the whole Maplethorpe NEA battle began uh, in, in the 80s, late 80s. And um, I, uh, there was a PBS channel there, though, that showed everything unedited uh, on broadcast television. So I got to watch Zeffirelli's original Romeo and Juliet with nudity. Yeah, it was amazing. All these like little moments of kind of truth, you know, in terms of filmmaking coming into my life. Um, and it was lovely. It was a really wonderful way to see, to see really good work. Do you find that being exposed to, I guess in particular Hitchcock so early on has, has shaped the type of projects that you gravitate towards even today? Or have you noticed any kind of change in interest in that respect? shaped, uh, you know, my sensibilities, Um, the mystery, the psychological mystery. um, Absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, besides Hitchcock, you know, there was Bambi, but um, Hitchcock kind of left the mark. Just curious now, because, you know, we're, we're in an industry where things are remade constantly. If you had the opportunity to take a Hitchcock film and put your own spin on it, what would you choose and why? Uh, you know, I think the the classic Hitchcock. I would love to take a take a whack at, and Gus Van Sant did that. You know, in I think it was two thousand um, Psycho. You know, and it was very interesting in how he shot, reshot it using I think every single frame that Hitchcock shot. Um, thinking about um, male toxicity um, in the film, thinking about misogyny in the film. Um, thinking about uh, killing off a, a female character in in the way she was killed off, um, the female hero, etc. cetera. Uh, it would be really interesting to do a feminist take. I, I would check that out in a heartbeat. I hope, I hope someone accepting pitches <laughs> sees this and makes that happen. So I was, uh, I was doing my research and I read that you were a political science and women's studies major at first. And then we were just talking before we started the record, you wound up getting an MFA in film. So at what point did you decide you wanted to pursue film as a career? Uh, When I was an undergrad, I I went into undergrad knowing that I w- wanted to be a filmmaker, and I um, I walked into my first film class at Columbia, 
um, as, as an 18 year old young woman. And I was the only woman. I was definitely the only person of color in the room. And we were in the middle of watching a woman getting murdered by a Roto-Rooter in, um, in a Brian De Palma film. And, uh, and I fled. I fled. It felt like that world was not for me um, because it was not for me. And um, I, you know, I took a circuitous route, you know, around filmmaking. I was writing, but as a journalist uh, for several years, poli-sci and women's studies major. Um, and the love of filmmaking, though, stayed with me. Happily, luckily, um, I had access to one of the greatest repository of film in this country at Third World Newsreel, which is um, in New York City, distribution and production house from the 1960s that shot the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, the women's movement, um, everything. And so that history was at my fingertips. I was working there. That was my job in distribution. And so I, at nights, I would just bring, at the time, there were tapes, VHS S tapes. I would bring them home um, with my young son, and, and we'd watch them. I mean, my like little boy was watching Ganjan Hess, you know, when he was six. So um, it was ama- it was amazing. It was a- a- an- another great way to get educated about a film history I did not know existed. And that said, uh, people who look like me could make film and were making film. And so that started the belief that I could go back to my first love and I, went to, I applied to film school. So everybody's, everybody's path and experience is different, but you just, you have such an appreciation for the history of cinema. I don't know. Do you, do you think that's a very important thing for kind of any filmmaker to have, or, you know, is it still okay to kind of like jump into the deep end, whether or not you have that kind of knowledge of what came before? I mean, I think both is important. I think it's really exciting to see what people are doing on TikTok and just, creating a whole new language with a with a technical device you know that everyone has access to and 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 has no ideas of what is acceptable language in film or cinema so the language is is completely new and fresh and probably not 100% fresh because we're all kind of influenced by the screen subconsciously but there is uh, no fear of failure so I do love um when people just come to it and start making film and, and videos. Um, for me, the history is really important because it was so necessary for me to feel that I could do it and to see examples uh, in, in a hidden history. Again, the, the work at Third World Newsreel, you know, a lot of our history in this industry is hidden. You know, the female screenwriters, you know, that were the predominant screenwriters at the beginning of the industry, um, et cetera. You know, all the great Black filmmakers out there and Asian filmmakers and international filmmakers that we don't get to see kind of as a matter of course. And thanks to the streamers now, the appetite for all of that is growing, um, which I think is such a beautiful thing. It's, it's incredible to hear, you know, my Filipina aunt in Ohio falling in love with Bollywood. You know, it's it's amazing. That is hands down one of my favorite things about the rise in streaming services. I can't keep up with them all, but the fact that they're all there and they're all giving me like such a variety of content like I've never had at my fingertips before is the most thrilling thing in the world. So yeah. I want to go back to something you said when you brought up TikTok about new filmmakers who don't know about the history of cinema jumping into it, but not knowing the language. I'm curious as someone who went through a, uh, a film program, a strict film program in school, 
did you ever kind of wind up in a situation where you're trying to follow maybe the rigidity of a program and certain lessons that are being taught, but also kind of expressing yourself and coming up with your own language there? Um, yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate because between Third World Newsreel, which was classic documentaries from the 1960s, to kind of your classic three-act you know, structure features to very experimental film, like very kind of nonlinear, um, visceral expressions of whatever experience the filmmaker had. I had a whole kind of world, an ecosystem of various ways that language uh, was was put on screen. And so when I went to NYU, I did want to learn. It was a very, it was, it was a purposeful technical experience and education I wanted. I wanted to know how to shoot. I wanted to know how to record sound. I wanted to have the apparatus and the knowledge of creating so that I could create myself. Um, and at the time, it was a, it was a really exciting time to it, the 90s. You know, it was like there was so much going on in terms of the indie film world in New York. And so um, having the means of production was really, really important. And that's what I mean today. I think the means of production is becoming even more widespread, uh, which, which it should be. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, there were, there were times where... I felt at NYU, um, and, and I feel as a student of of the art of the art form, is I always want to learn every um, device that's out there in terms of craft. So I did want to learn the discipline of a three act structure. When I went into television, I did want to learn the discipline of a serialized drama. Um, you know, more tools, more tools to then dissemble. Um, if if I want to, but knowing kind of the <clears throat> the baseline of how to create something or how things have been seen in the past has been really important to deconstruct them. So at first, I was wondering when I was doing my research, how did you get into reality TV? But I feel like some of the some of the earlier seeds that were planted kind of led you to that kind of I, I guess storytelling in a sense. So how did you wind up landing a job with? One of my absolute favorite shows of all time, admittedly, Real World. It was the first job I was offered, you know, when I graduated. It was a way to make money. It was um, a way to direct for the first time. I, I came out of the NYU directing program. I was given an incredible opportunity by uh, one of the producers at The Real World, Russell Helt, um, who was actively at that time in 2001 saying, I want to hire all women directors. Um, so with the exception, I believe there were a majority of female directors on that season of the real world because of him. So that kind of allyship is so essential because it gave me an opportunity, you know, to step into the director's chair, you know, in, in that world and, uh, and absolutely, uh, learn so much. Uh, that, you know, I think things probably have changed now. I, I'm not an aficionado of, of reality television, um, you know, in terms of what I watch. But uh, when I was at the real world, it was very much, you know, cinema verite. We were not allowed to talk to the cast. We, I mean, aside from giving them a house and jobs, there was very little interference uh, and lots of alcohol, um, <clears throat> which is kind of, yeah, uh, but we had to observe, you know, that was my job is observe 
for 12 hour shifts, how people act, how they wake up in the morning, how they eat breakfast, what they do. And the vast majority of time, they're not doing anything very interesting. But one thing I noticed, and it really influenced my later work, this one scene in The Killing, uh, when people fight, we repeat ourselves all the time. The exact same thing that we say minute one of the fight, we're saying probably minute 10 the exact same phrasing. And it's like a ping pong match, you know, repeat, 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 repeat. And so what that afforded us as a film crew was we go into a fight and I started to realize we had time now to record things because we go into a fight and shoot the close-ups right away, just in case they don't repeat. Um, but they would, we pull back, I pull the camera woman back. She'd shoot the two shot, pull her back, she'd get the wide, and they're still fighting, and they're still saying the exact same stuff. And so at that point, I would say, go to the rest of the house and, li- and see how people are reacting to this screaming match that's happening, you know, behind closed doors or not. And the reaction of the other cast members were, was so interesting because how people react to something that's happening off camera sometimes is more powerful than the actual drama on camera. So flash forward many years later, I'm writing The Killing and and trying to find a way to have that final moment in the pilot when the mother of Rosie Larson discovers her daughter is dead, um, not be exploitative, um, but also be extraordinarily powerful and and break the audience's heart. And I, I, you know, I remember that how influential it is to see how people are reacting to sadness or grief or anger. And so I wrote the two boys into the scene where they're watching their mother um, break down as she gets news of her daughter's death. And that moment between these two little boys just looking at their mom, you know, all her cries are off camera, staying with them, having the courage to kind of like these young actors, they, they were in it. Um, stay with them was was I think one of the most powerful moments of the pilot for me. You kind of answered my next question there, which was were there lessons learned on a show like Real World that come in handy now? But just to stick with reality TV for a little, you know, I, I don't know how much of this is actually true or not, but you know, I often hear reality TV nowadays, at least, is you know super forced and sometimes manufactured having had what sounds to me like a really pure experience while you were making that season of Real World, do you think that that experience kind of, you know, steered you away from consuming reality television now? Uh, maybe. Um, you know, I was on the show for uh, a season and then I did another, um, I did another version of the show where they go somewhere to another country and, 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 and do games against one another. And, and again, you know, I was young single mom trying to make a living, so I, I, I took the job. But it was right after 9-11. So the trauma of going, traveling right after 9-11 to Baja, Mexico, and then arriving in Baja, and then within 10 days, the worst hurricane to hit the uh, Baja region happened in 35 years. And so we were flooded. We had no water. We had no electricity. It was just like, I think I've, I've, I've had it with television for other reasons other than, you know, just, yeah. So 
you're, you're done with real world. You've kind of like chipped away at the beginning of your career. Is there any particular, whether it was an entire production or maybe even just getting a certain job title on a show that, you know, made you feel like accomplished, like I've made it and, you know, I've got a degree of control over my own career and the next steps that I take now? Well, certainly having the opportunity to share run for the first time, I was able to share run Cold Case, which is was created by Meredith Steen, um, who's a remarkable woman. And she created it when she was quite young. Um, and this was, you know, when the networks were king. And so, you know, she's holding up, you know, this like, $60 million production, you know, at, at such a young age, fighting, you know, the battles for, for a woman in particular creator who had to retain control of her own show. And so I got to benefit by watching kind of the courage of this woman, um, you know, fight for what was her vision. And uh, within, you know, I came on to that show as a baby writer. And within a few years, Meredith, you know, made the decision to move on. And she left the show in my hands, which was really just not expected. Um, you know, I was, I was a low level writer and that's not really how it works in television. You know, it's a rank and file system like the military and you kind of move up to general hood. You don't get it when you're a private, um, you don't get to run the army when you're a private. And so, yeah, many lessons were learned. (laughs) Confidence, uh, came after a while of kind of walking through the crucible of, um, being the lady boss for the first time in my life over a pretty big venture. You've worked with so many incredible actors over the course of your career. And I feel like, you know, a director and a producer is often the leader on set, guiding the project more so than anybody. But how would you say that your craft as a writer and director has been guided by some of the actors that you've worked with? Have you noticed like an especially big influence from anyone that you've directed before? Well, I mean, I've, I've had this incredible, um, the incredible opportunity time and again to work with such huge talents and and what I've learned very quickly that it is a collaborative process and as a writer in particular and a showrunner creator um, really make sure that the essence of who the actor is is incorporated in the writing of the character so uh, and and what I mean by that is as as a writer you come with an idea of who somebody is and it's as fleshed out, you know, as possible kind of, you know, in our imagination. And then you cast somebody and you're casting. A lot of times I cast for a specific quality that I think is true about the character. But all these great actors that I've worked with then bring so much more. They bring this whole, they bring their, themselves, their lives, their experience, their, the love of a child, you know, the, the fear of losing a child, you know, um, their life experience to the project. And, and you start to feel that as you get to work with them. And so I know a lot of uh, people aspire to write shows prior to day one of production. I don't like to do that. I like to write and then be ready to jump into it on day one and change everything Um, or just to the human beings who show up on set with far more interesting stuff than maybe I could make up. Um, You know, it's just, it's been, it's been an extraordinary um, journey. I worked with Regina King um, on seven seconds and there is a moment in the second episode where she walks into the hospital room to find her young son has passed away. And she's been holding vigil, 
you know, for days over her child. And she just went downstairs to the cafeteria to get food. It's late at night. And he died in, in, in the interim. And there was a, when I, when I wrote the scene, you know, of course a writer has, you know, the, every moment, every angle, every kind of muscle twitch, you know, everything that the, the character that you've lived with for so long is doing. And Miss King came in and just sat there in such quietude with such sadness. And Jonathan Demi directed that episode, you know, the great Jonathan. And, and, and he, between these two kind of giants of our craft to see her courage to just sit there with the body of her slain child and to go walk through that moment by moment by moment with absolute truth. And then Jonathan to keep running the camera, you know, because our language in film is here come the tears. We're out. Not with Regina. Here come the tears. They recede. Here comes something else. It recedes. Here comes, you know, and every, I was sitting in the edit. I remember for the first time seeing this scene and I know it's speechless. Going back to something you just said about casting and casting for a particular quality that you think someone might have, I can't help but to jump into The Stranger now and ask what it was about Dane that made you say he was the right person for that role. (laughs) Dane DeHaan is an actor I have wanted to work with for a very long time. Uh, I first saw him in Place Beyond the Pines and then Kill Your Darlings. Dane has this range that is extraordinary. He can play the, the sweetest, most broken, most open-hearted little boy, plays beyond the pines, and, and then go to the absolute other end of the spectrum, like in the blink of an eye. You know, there's, there's this incredible kind of facility in him to just open up both doors to his soul, and it's rare. You know, and so what I wanted for the character of Carl E was complex, uh, charming, um, you know, not just a a buffoon, deeply intelligent, um, deeply destroyed and devastated by his own kind of personal journey and and pain. Um, And and then melding all of that into absolute raging cold hatred of, of women in the world and wanting to like have control. So there was... There was an arc to this character that, you know, the bad guy can always be kind of mustache twirly, especially Carly, because he's always kind of, we meet him when he's at the apex kind of of his power. And he has such like a facility with words and making fun of, you know, what's going on. And so I wanted those words and that intent, you know, in the mouth of an actor who understood the hundred layers below it. Uh, And Dane is certainly that actor. Oh, I have so many spoiler questions. I'm glad we're talking more soon because I am going to go crazy with the end of the movie and just all the details with Carl's backstory. But first, just for you personally, what would you say is the reason why you needed to make The Stranger your next project as, you know, a growing writer and director? The Stranger was definitely born out of this simmering rage I was feeling. And I was feeling kind of in the ether post-2016 election, post-Me Too, you know, this, this anger and rage and enough is enough with, you know, white male toxicity. And so um, I didn't, I wanted to make sure that the, uh, that we could be really clear that this is what this person's about, you know, the, the Carl E. character. Here's a man who's taking kind of 
all his power and all his pain and like turned it into this weaponized it into this this thing against women um and i also wanted to really have the character of micah monroe who plays claire his his nemesis and, and the protagonist and the hero of, of the film be someone who gets to turn and face the attacker you know and 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 without spoiling it too much <laughs> um I wanted the response to that rage of 2016 to not be polite and not be constructive, to be about burning down the fucking house and taking back power in a way that was unequivocal. I, I feel like even if I tried to describe what I watched when I saw the whole thing through, like the way you just put it definitely encapsulates where, especially where we wind up. It's, it, it, the ending, the last time we spoke, it was when I had only watched, I think, up to chapter six. And now my mind is just abuzz with a million more questions. But I do have to ask you about the technology behind making a Quibi series, the turnstile tech here. How does that change your prep process as a director? Are we talking basically like, like doubling your storyboards? Uh, good question. I had an, I, I did have a, an intent early on when I knew that we would have to accommodate for people who were holding the phone either widescreen or vertical. Um, and so I said, should I have two monitors on set? Should I make sure that we're shooting Lula? And, um, and uh, that would never happen. Like you're, you know, it's a set, so you're moving at breakneck kind of speed. And so what we did was uh, the DP and I and, and my production designer talked ad nauseum, you know, before day one about, um, in prep, we spent a lot of time talking about what is the most satisfying way to tell this story for somebody. Cause I know how to tell a story horizontally. I've never told a story vertically, right? None of us had, if you're holding the phone like this, um, what's the most satisfying way for an audience to feel like they are getting the whole entire story and not missing pieces because we usually see in wider aspect ratio and we're used to seeing that way. And if we don't see that way, we feel like we're losing information because there have been other series that tried to do this vertical storytelling. I, I watched them. I felt like, wait, I'm, I'm what's going on on this side of the screen. So very, um, very quickly realized we couldn't just say, okay, screw you if you're holding it vertically. We don't care. Just hold, hold it horizontal, horizontally, especially since phones are designed to be held vertically. So we started to talk about what about depth? You know, what about instead of thinking east-west, you think north-south, you know, or actually, I'm sorry, you think A to Z, you know? So how do I create as much depth inside the frame? Because whether it's horizontal or vertical, I'm going to feel that. And make sure that the information that audiences get holding vertically or horizontally is, is constantly at the edges of frame so that they're never feeling like they're missing anything. So, for example, um, we made sure that we pushed aisles together closer in, in like the gas station. You know, there was constantly layers, uh, depth layers that we were shooting through. Claire was always moving through spaces that were interesting and, and, and full of like, life, like the train station, you know, Chinatown Plaza, you know, the train itself, you know, the chairs, the, the lights, there's always something moving and giving you more information. The toughest thing is the movie opens up on two people sitting in a car. So, so what we talked about then was, um, 
you know, to respect kind of the, 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 the dark element and the dark tone of what evolves slowly in that car between these two people, keep the camera moving, but very slowly and hit different, hit the side of her cheekbone, hit the rear view mirror where you see her eyes, hit Carl's E's eyes, you know, just keep kind of, keep the camera moving in ways that maybe the audience isn't aware of, but they are subconsciously constantly getting information. I know you shot, I think, almost all the series on location and not on a stage. Was it all of it? We shot a great majority of it uh, on location. Um, there, there, were, there were stages that we used uh, that were downtown Los Angeles um, for a few of the sets. But for the most part, yeah, we were, we were there, you know, because we had to, we had to feel, the, we had to feel the, the depth and the breadth you know, of this world that she was running through in order to deal with the depth issue on frame. Was there any location that was, I don't know, particularly difficult to lock? Or if you didn't know you were going to get approval to do it, that made you say like, I, I need to be on location and I can't recreate that anywhere else or it's not going to work. Almost every single one was difficult to lock. <laughs> the LA River, you're not allowed to shoot there anymore. You know, so we shot, uh, we shot at a dam um, up in Van Nuys. Uh, we had to recreate uh, the speakeasy because real speakeasies are tiny. And uh, I needed, you know, I needed a lot of depth, you know, for the two characters as they're escaping from Carl E to kind of move through a crowd. Um, and, and we weren't getting that in the locations we were seeing, as gorgeous as they were. Um, the, the most difficult location to shoot in was the underground subway tunnels that have been abandoned for many years. And you feel the claustrophobia of being under um, hundreds of stories of cement above you <laughs> when you're down there. I mean, all of us had to wear masks. Um, you know, some people wearing, you know, the gas mask to kind of filter out uh, and, and to feel like the city is above you in an earthquake kind of ridden city, you know, where the deepest you could ever possibly go in Los Angeles in the earth uh, was, was, was not easy. So we got in and out of there as fast as we could. We did not even break the lunch. We said, okay, let's get out. <laughs> All I could picture right now is poor pebbles down there too. <laughs> <laughs> so music. Music plays a very, very big, uh, big part in this series. So I guess to start, were those specific songs scripted from the start or are those songs you decided on after the fact? Yeah, you know what was surprising? I usually don't use music. I use composition. Um, you know, that's, that's usually my go-to. And the composer for the series, uh, you know, was, was remarkable. And, and, and he did Seven Seconds, my other show, but when I was writing this, because, because the Quibi format uh, necessitates a very propulsive type of storytelling that, again, is usually not my jam, this whole other part, I think, opened up of using music, you know, and, and in a city like Los Angeles, you know, we, we drive around with our radio playing, we hear, you know, other people's radios playing, you know, we hear music on the street. And so um, I, you know, from the from the get go, you know, it was an homage to to the city of Los Angeles, you know, and, and to and to the music that's come from the city. And also, it started out to California Dreaming was the very first piece that I thought of when I was thinking of Claire. And a huge part is because I was also thinking of Wong Kar Wai, and um, 
who was another giant influence on the film besides Collateral um, and, and Nightcrawler. And, and so I was thinking about California Dreaming and then I heard other versions of it. And then I heard, uh, yeah, so it was just like I was hearing music and writing and in this like energetic space and, and, and the songs just kept coming. I have two follow-ups that I don't want to forget to ask. So California Dreamin', but then when did you so- decide to have that song bookend the film and why from two different artists? I wanted Claire to change. You know, she was a different woman uh, than she, she at the end than she was like, being radically different. And so California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas have like a hopefulness, you know, especially in the, in the Wong Kar Wai film, an openness, hopefulness, naivete, sweetness um, that she no longer possesses at the end of the film. For good. And so I wanted a very different type. You know, she came to California with the character with a dream. And this is the new dream, you know, that she gets in this kind of, you know, city of, of, of dreams. This is really random, but, you know, I saw, I saw the collateral billboard and I, I know about some of the other influences, but when, I guess, all right, spoiler warning right now, just so you could talk about this with a little freedom. Did the movie Saw ever come to mind? <laughs> just because Carl, Carl E's agenda and, and motives and trying to challenge his victims reminded me a lot of, of Jigsaw. Interesting. You know, it didn't. It didn't. I've I've always been drawn to really smart psychopaths. You know, like I think that's <laughs> I think that makes the most interesting psychopath. You know, and 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 a, a, a worthy nemesis. You know, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is probably more realistic than than most, but I was more interested in 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 um, in Lecter. You know, I was more interested in, in that kind of uh, tete-a-tete between, you know, the bad guy and, and the good woman. Um, so, yeah, that's, that is where Carl E. came from. <laughs> I'm buried in horror all the time. I was, I was bound to be one of the few that made that connection. <laughs> what about why Carl E. became that way to begin with? Do you have to talk about that kind of backstory that put him in that position to be so obsessed with that algorithm with Dane? Dane is really intelligent and, and loves to have conversations and, and welcomes them, which, which I do too. Uh, we talked about, um, we, we didn't, ne- I didn't necessarily do kind of a blow by blow from the writer perspective and what I imagined was, was Carl's kind of Genesis story. Um, but we talked about feelings. We talked about loneliness. We talked about um, not getting what you think you deserve. Uh, we talked about entitlement. Um, but again, Dane had to put himself in the place of his character who then feels rage and wrath, you know, when he's not getting what he wants. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we, we talked about Carl a lot. We also, I, I also wanted to avoid, and Dane and I talked about this, some simplistic notion of who he is. Because I think, you know, especially now, we're kind of looking at, you know, um, all the things that have happened in this country in the last four years, especially, and kind of the rise of the, the angry white white dude and entitled white dude. And, 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 and everyone's trying to analyze where that comes from. It doesn't make sense. Why did they vote for Trump? You know, these aren't poor guys. They're earning, earning who knows where the fuck it comes from, you know, but it's this, it's this state of mind and of privilege that, you know, it was his job as the actor to find um, and, and be authentic in, um, which he did. 
he has he's really something else in this um I feel like you guys often get to talk on set and then we get to grill everybody about their experience after the fact. But, you know, now that you are removed from the actual making of The Stranger, I did wonder if if you had the opportunity to kind of ask your three leads a question about their experience and how they feel about it now that it's finished, what would it be? Micah and I had a chance to talk because of all the actors she went through the absolute, you know, she went through the mill. It's it's a difficult, difficult place to live in for six weeks, five weeks, you know, um, that state of terror, that state of anger, that state of despair, that state of revenge. And so um, we were able to have a really lovely conversation um, post The Stranger about what it was like for her. Um, it was, it was difficult, you know, it's, it, it's not an easy role. And, and that's the beautiful thing for me about Michael Monroe is here's a woman who, you know, like Dane brings a whole world of truth to the character, which, I mean, some people call it the scream queen. I just call it a woman kind of in peril, you know, who then learns to kind of find her power, um, the hero. But I, I loved Micah because I think in all her other films, what I saw the quality was a woman who 100% believes this. So she's not doing kind of like the neck thrown back and the, you know, she is in the moment of truly what's happening. And that convinces me, the audience that I'm in the moment too. Totally hear you on that. I can't wait to talk to you all more about this. Before I let you go, though, I always like to end on some like rapid fire, fun, get to know you questions. And one of my absolute favorite ones is, do you collect anything? Oh, um, do I collect things? I, well, I think the closest thing I had or have a collection of are corgis. <gasps> corgis. And, and, I, and I must add to that because now I'm thinking about corgis. I am a panda video and I'm a panda video collector. I'm obsessed with pandas. <laughs> All I want now is to see some of these panda videos and like I wish there was a corgi that would just like magically appear. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about corgis. So I'm going to ask you, what is your onset vice? Like, what is the thing that you need to reach for when you're having, like, a tough day or you need an energy boost, anything at all? Candy. What what kind of candy? Anything. Like, yeah, I was, initially I go to set and I'm like, can we just have healthy stuff and dates and apricots and fruit? Where's the M&Ms? Like, just pile them into a cup and just sit there and eat them. Yeah. The healthy mentality only lasts so long. Yeah. (laughs) Finally now. If you could only watch one movie over and over for the rest of your life, what would you pick and why? Oh, that's a really good, um, that's a really good question. For the rest of my life, rest and bone. That's not what I was ready for, but that is a very solid choice. That's a lot to watch over and over. Oh, yeah. But every moment of it is so beautiful and so pure. And she's incredible. And that moment, to this day, I cannot not think about that moment when she's in front of the aquarium and the whale comes up. And just the the beauty of that. It's just, yeah. I I 100% respect that decision. (laughs) Nina, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Cannot wait to cover The Stranger more. Congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Napa Know How. 
Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. Stay little chico, Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.